0: Welcome to A Breath of Fresh Earth, taking the commitment to a clean environment to the next level. Your host, Rick Friedman, will crown the climate hero and villain of the week, along with discussing worldwide environmental issues, showcasing new products designed with the longevity of our planet in mind, and putting the spotlight on the individuals making a big impact in helping the climate and pollution crisis through social media. Now, your host, Rick Friedman. The Keystone Pipeline is dead. Woohoo! <laughs> TC Energy, the developer of the pipeline, terminated the project. The Keystone Pipeline carries oil from Alberta, Canada, to Oklahoma. The major controversy surrounds a proposed 1,200 mile extension between Alberta and Nebraska. Developers called this new extension the Keystone XL Pipeline and would have connected the existing Keystone Pipeline in Nebraska all the way to Texas. The additional extension has been under consideration since 2008, when Canadian-based TC Energy decided the extension would help increase oil production because the route would allow 830,000 barrels a day to be transported to Texas. The current pipeline carries around 550,000 barrels a day from Canada. The announcement of the pipeline drew swift reaction from people worried about the pipeline's environmental impact. The situation has gone on for more than 10 years. Lots of decision-makers want their opinion heard and followed. Politicians, administrators, environmentalists, oil lobbyists. Each have claimed victory, only to have it snatched away. Here's a brief history of the pipeline. First, let's take a look at who didn't want the pipeline and why. Indigenous tribes parts of the proposed Keystone XL extension would have run right through or close to indigenous territories, potentially threatening drinking water sources. There have already been oil leaks along existing parts of the pipeline, and the affected tribes in the region have no reason to believe the extension would be any different. Besides the environmental dangers, the initial permits granted by the State Department ignored existing treaties between the government and tribal nations. If I know my history a little bit, our government's been pretty good about ignoring treaties with tribal nations. Farms and ranchers along the route have faced eminent domain, which would allow the government to take control of private land for public use, as in handing it over to TC Energy regardless of opposition. Nebraska has been a battleground state, with an estimated 92% of its land belonging to family-owned farms and ranches. Also at stake would be the Olagala Aquifer, an underwater supply that provides water to most of the state. If that's contaminated by leaks the ramifications would take a serious toll on public health, agriculture, livestock, and wildlife. Tar sands oil poses additional hazards both to local Alberta residents and those who live along the proposed route. Numerous studies have already linked higher cancer rates from polluted air and water in areas where people live near tar sands oil production. We'll talk about what tar sands oil is in a minute. It's not just the public who's at risk. For example, Nebraska is home to 20,000 acres of dunes and prairie hills known as sandhills. It's a popular pit stop for migrating sandhill cranes in particular. TC Energy's proposed reroute would still cut straight through this region. A leak of any size could prove disastrous. The U.S. State Department reviewed the project in 2009. People in Nebraska started saying, whoa, hold on. Maybe we don't want this pipeline running through our lovely state. How will the pipeline impact our farmland and water system? Those are good questions because if you've listened to this podcast, you'd certainly know that pipelines have accidents and some of them are devastating to the communities and wildlife. But despite the objection of Nebraskans, the State Department said, Screw you, Nebraska. The negative side effects of the pipeline would be minimal, the country needs oil, and oil needs pipelines. Well, that's not exactly how they said it, but you get my drift. This approval further angered environmentalists. The State Department delayed the project for another year, pending additional review but came to the same conclusion in 2011. Build that pipeline. More protests followed, and the State Department changed their view and ordered the pipeline to be rerouted through the state, and TC Energy agreed. So everybody was finally happy, right? Nope. Barack Obama, president at the time, blocked the Alberta to Nebraska extension because he didn't believe officials had enough time to properly review the new proposed route. TC Energy started moving forward with the southern extension from Oklahoma to Texas in 2012, while everybody was hassling with the upper part. They submitted a new reroute application for the first leg. The state of Nebraska approved the new route in 2013, and opponents filed a lawsuit against them. In 2014, a Nebraska judge ruled in favor of the opposition, and the State Department once again suspended moving forward. Wow, this is getting so complicated. While well, the case got moved up to the Nebraska Supreme Court and the previous ruling was overturned in 2015, and the U.S. Senate allowed the Keystone XL extension to resume again. President Obama stepped into it and vetoed the bill. Later that year, the administration rejected TC Energy's reroute application, and this appeared to be the end of the project. But wait, this is like a Star Wars movie. Here comes Darth Vader, also known as the former twice-impeached president, whose name I do not say. President Orange gave new life to the Keystone XL Pipeline in 2017. Not so fast, liar-in-chief. A federal judge blocked that order in 2018, pending an environmental review. Ah, but the force is strong with this one, this Darth Vader. And he issued a presidential permit in 2019, allowing the pipeline to proceed. And construction began in 2020. So Joe Biden canceled the project, and now it's over. For sure, right? Well... Again, not so fast. President Biden canceled the pipeline on his first day of office. In response, 21 Republican-led states have since filed a lawsuit against Biden, questioning his authority to make such a decision. I guess they spineless Republicans are forgetting the former president overstepped his authority by issuing that presidential permit in 2019, allowing the pipeline to proceed, despite the required environmental reviews I just mentioned. The type of oil that TC Energy wants to transport from Alberta via the pipeline, is known as tar sands. This type of oil is considered one of the dirtiest fossil fuels on the planet. Tar sands oil requires water from the nearby Athabasca River in Alberta. There's only so much water they can get, then it's gone. The first method, involving surface mining, creates gallons of wastewater. This wastewater is stored in tailing ponds, where the toxic water is more likely to leak into the environment. The other method involves pumping steam underground. This method also requires burning fossil fuels. In 2010, a faulty pipeline carrying tar sands oil leaked, guess how much? A gallon? 10 gallons? 200 gallons? No, 843,000 gallons into Michigan's Kalamazoo River, prompting area evacuations and permanently damaged the Talmadge Creek, the initial site of the spill. The incident is considered the largest inland oil spill to occur in the United States. The United States Fish and Wildlife Service estimated that oil damaged more than 1,500 acres of streams and rivers and negatively impacted at least 4,000 area animals that needed to be saved. The existing pipeline has leaked dozens of times since 2010. Of course it does, because all pipelines leak. There were 35 leaks in the pipeline's first year alone, including a 21,000-gallon spill impacting North Dakota. In 2016, about 17,000 gallons leaked in South Dakota but that was nothing compared to the following year when 210,000 gallons spilled near the small town of Amherst, South Dakota. T.C. Energy later revised the number to 407,000 gallons. In 2019, an additional 378,000 gallons spilled again in North Dakota. Tar sands oil is more likely to leak than crude oil due to its corrosive nature and the high temperatures needed to transport it, and leaks are much harder to detect. Tar sand leaks are three times more likely than conventional crude oil. A 2002 report revealed that leak detection systems missed 19 out of the 20 leaks during a 10-year period. The canceled Keystone Pipeline is an encouraging step towards a less oil-reliant future, but it's still just one step. There remain other controversial pipelines caught up in the legal battles, most notably the Dakota Access Pipeline. Resolving the ongoing pipeline threat ultimately requires a continued push towards clean energy eliminating the need for pipelines in the first place. Bye-bye. Goodbye. bye, bye. bye, bye. Laws of habitat, pollution, and climate change threaten millions of species. Who is on the chopping block today? In 2016, the large antler munchak was uplisted from endangered to critically endangered on the IUCN's Red List of Threatened Species. It was first recognized as a species just in 1993, not that long ago the giant munchak is headed fast towards extinction. As munchacks go, the large antlered is the largest species, but munchacks in general are small members of the deer family. The species is gonna fade away quietly. They're hidden away in a minuscule global range in the Annamite Mountains of Laos and Vietnam. Large antlered munchacks are a rich dark brown overall and stand approximately two feet high at the shoulder. Like other munchak, they have antlers. Males have sharp, long canine teeth they use in fighting. The major threats to the species are caused by widespread intensive snaring throughout their small range. This snaring is driven by a booming wildlife trade that encompasses the derivatives of many species, from well-known products of tigers and pangolins to gelatin derived from primate bones, turtle shells, and medicinal plants. The large antler munchak isn't a particular focus of this trade, but the snares are indiscriminate. Trade is booming because of the economic and population growth of East Asian countries. Ensuring the management of protected areas, like World Land Trust's project with Viet Nature Khe Nok Trung, is key to the survival of large antler munchaks. Ongoing surveys, research, and camera traps will hopefully reveal more about this secretive and highly threatened mammal. Khe Trung is the only site in Vietnam with several confirmed records of large antler munchaks with six to seven individuals recorded. Can you imagine if you were one of the last six or seven humans on the planet? Talk about pressure to find a mate and reproduce. That would take performance anxiety to a whole new level. Good luck to the large antler munchak. He's a man. <laughs> it's awesome, funny, random. Doesn't make any sense, but it's good. We're a bit over 100 days since Joe Biden took office. When he was on the campaign trail, he made a lot of promises about climate change. Let's take a look at what he's actually done. First and most importantly, he rejoined the Paris Climate Agreement. He also signed an executive order prioritizing environmental protections, clean air and water, chemical and pesticides mitigation, polluter accountability, greenhouse gas reduction, and climate change resilience. Oh, my dog just entered the studio. Hey, what's up, Zona? The order requires federal agency review of the previous administration's policies, including policies regulating air quality, national monuments, oil and gas leasing in the Arctic Refuge, and methane emissions by oil and gas industries. He signed an executive order emphasizing the importance of giving executive departments and agencies flexibility to use robust regulatory action to address national priorities. The order rolls back the twice-impeached presidents-era policies that limit regulations. Biden issued an executive memorandum that recommits the federal government to heating science requires review, and reform of existing policies to ensure that they are evidence-based, not just based on loony, crazy stuff, and discourages inappropriate political interference in scientific research and conclusions. Biden created a presidential advisory council on science, technology, and innovation, charged with informing public policy relating to the economy, working empowerment, education, energy, the environment, public health, national and homeland security, racial equality, and others. He signed an executive order that positions the climate crisis at the center of foreign and domestic policy and national security with the goal of bringing the United States to net zero emissions economy-wide by no later than 2050. It seems like an awfully long time from now. He signed an executive order mandating a review of climate change impacts on migration, national security, and international policy. When that review comes out, they'll figure out they need to get to net zero away before 2050. Biden launched the Climate Innovation Working Group, bolster U.S. progress on green energy. He earmarked $100 million for innovative research and development to improve climate resilience. You're going to need a whole lot more than $100 million. He signed the American Rescue Plan Act, a pandemic relief bill that includes funds for water system upgrades, financial support for local regulators, and public infrastructure. And on Earth Day, Biden convened 40 leaders for the Leader Summit on climate. We talked about that a few episodes ago. He pledged U.S. greenhouse gas emissions to be cut in half by 2030. I'd say he's off to a good start. We'll reassess the list later in the year. He has a great idea. National Geographic recognizes the Southern Ocean as the fifth official ocean. National Geographic is a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose mapping standards are referenced by many atlases and cartographers. They say the Southern Ocean consists of the waters surrounding Antarctica out to 60 degrees south latitude. Scientists have long known that the waters surrounding Antarctica form a distinct ecological region defined by ocean currents and temperatures. The Southern Ocean is yet to be officially recognized as an ocean by the relevant international body. People look to National Geographic Society for facts, like how many continents are there? Or how many countries are there in the world? How many oceans? Up till now, it's been four. The Atlantic, the Pacific, the Indian, and the Arctic. The U.S. Board of Geographic Names, that's a federal body created in 1890 to establish and maintain uniform geographic name usage through the federal government, already recognizes the Southern Ocean as occupying the same territory. But this is the first time the National Geographic has done so. Attempts to ratify the boundaries and name of the Southern Ocean internationally has been thwarted. The concept of naming the Southern Ocean was proposed to the International Hydrographic Organization. That's the organization that ensures the world's seas, oceans, and waters are surveyed and charted. That happened back in 2000, but some of the IHO's 94 members dissented. I couldn't find out why. Climate change during the last 30 years is causing major problems in the Southern Ocean. It's time for the Climate Hero of the Week. You want heroes? I got heroes. The Goldman Environmental Prize is awarded annually to grassroots environmental activists, one from each of the world's six geographic regions, Africa, Asia, Europe, islands and island nations, North America, and South and Central America. The award is given by the Goldman Environmental Foundation headquartered in San Francisco in California. It's also called the Green Nobel. The Goldman Environmental Prize was created in 1989 by civic leaders and philanthropists Richard Goldman and Rhoda Goldman. As of 2019, the award amount is $200,000. Chibese Ezekiel, as a direct result of Chibese's four-year grassroots campaign. In Ghana, the Minister of Environment canceled the construction of a 700-megawatt coal power plant and adjoining shipping port to import coal. Crystal Ambrose. Crystal convened the government of the Bahamas to ban single-use plastic bags, plastic cutlery, straws, and styrofoam containers and cups. That was back in April of 18. The nationwide ban went into effect in January 2020. Lady Pesce from Mexico. Lady is an indigenous Mayan beekeeper. She led a coalition that successfully halted Monsanto's planting of genetically modified soybeans in southern Mexico. Lucy Pinson of France. In 2017, Lucy's activism successfully pressured France's three largest banks to eliminate financing for new coal projects and local companies. Namate Nequimo from Ecuador led an indigenous campaign and legal action that resulted in a court ruling protecting 500,000 acres of Amazonian rainforest and War nari territory from oil extraction. And last but not least, Paul Sintwa, Myanmar. Paul led his people in establishing a 1.3 million acre peace park, a unique and collaborative community-based approach to conservation in the Salween River Basin. These young people are amazing. What are you doing to save the world today? feel the power 1972 1972 was quite a year, with a lot of highs and lows. Let's take a look back at the good, the bad, and the ugly from 1972. The good. The United States Congress passed the Clean Water Act. One of the United States' first and most influential modern environmental laws. Former president, he who shall not be named directed the EPA to mess with the regulations of the Clean Water Act and the current status may end up in the Supreme Court. The Declaration of the United Nations Conference on the Human Environment, or the Stockholm Declaration, was adopted on June 16th as the first document in international environmental law to recognize the right to a healthy environment. In the Declaration, the nations agreed to accept responsibility for any environmental effects caused by their actions. I don't think they've made good on that declaration during the last 39 years. The meeting agreed upon a declaration containing 26 principles concerning the environment and the development, an action plan with 109 recommendations, and a resolution. I'll give you 10 of the principles of the Stockholm Declaration, and you tell me how you think they're going. Human rights must be asserted, apartheid and colonialism condemned. Natural resources must be safeguarded. The Earth's capacity to produce renewable resources must be maintained. Wildlife must be safeguarded. that's a joke. Non-renewable resources must be shared and not exhausted. Pollution must not exceed the environment's capacity to clean itself. Have those guys looked in the ocean lately? Damaging oceanic pollution must be prevented. Nope, not doing good on that one either. Development is needed to improve the environment. Yeah, no kidding. Human settlements must be planned to eliminate environmental problems. Wow, that's like saying everybody should have water or food. Environmental education is essential. The ideas behind the conference were good, but the implementation of the plan has failed. The Values Party was a New Zealand political party. It is considered the world's first national-level environmentalist party, predating the use of green as a political label. The United Tasmania Group, the first-ever Green Party, is formed in Australia. The Wildlife Protection Act, an act of the Parliament of India enacted for protection of plants and animal species. Before 1972, India had only five designated national parks. Among other reforms, the Act established schedules of protected plant and animal species. Hunting or harvesting these species was largely outlawed. The Act provides for the protection of the wild animals, birds, and plants. It extended to the whole of India. U.S. President Nixon signed into law the Marine Protection, Research, and Sanctuaries Act of 1972, or Ocean Dumping Act. The Marine Manimal Protection Act was the first act of the United States Congress to call specifically for an ecosystem approach to wildlife management. Well, that is about all the good. Here's the bad. Mining of St. Pierre Island ceased, converting an island once densely forested into a barren, pitted landscape. On January 11th, a 10-inch pipeline ruptured in Clinton, Montana, spilling 3,000 barrels of diesel fuel, some of it reaching the Clark Fork River. A rupture of a 20 inch gas pipeline shut down most of the gas supply for Joplin, Missouri on January 28th. A colonial pipeline ruptured in Cobb County, Georgia in February, spilling about 2,000 gallons of fuel oil into the Chattahoochee River upstream of a water intake for the city of Atlanta. In February, a Conoco pipeline ruptured, spilling 16,000 gallons of diesel fuel into the Spokane River near Spokane, Washington. On May 14th, a pipeline owned by Exxon ruptured near Hearn, Texas. An estimated 332,346 gallons of crude burned, but that's just an estimate. On October 10th, a crude oil spill was spotted coming from a leaking oil pipeline off Grand Isle, Louisiana. About 8,000 barrels of crude oil were spilled. In October, a Texas-New Mexico pipeline company, crude oil pipeline ruptured near Shiprock, New Mexico, spilling 285,000 gallons of crude oil into the San Juan River, polluting it for 100 miles. Now, the ugly... We hear a lot about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, but in 1972, there was already a North Atlantic Garbage Patch. Made of marine debris found floating within the North Atlantic gyre, the patch was estimated to be hundreds of kilometers across in size, with a density of more than 200,000 pieces of debris per square kilometer. The source of the garbage originates from human waste traveling from rivers into the ocean and mainly consisted of microplastics. Yes, even then, we knew we had a problem. The 1972 Nicaragua earthquake occurred on December 23rd near Managua, the capital. The earthquake caused widespread casualties among Managua's residents. Between four and 10,000 were killed, 20,000 were injured, 300,000 were left homeless. The Puerto Rican baseball star Roberto Clemente chose to personally accompany the fourth of a number of relief flights that he had organized. The flight crashed on December 31st, killing Clemente, among others. See, doesn't it suck to be another... Sorry, guys, but I don't know who you were, so for now, you're still another. Clemente was my favorite baseball player, and I always wore his number, 21, during my long Sunday morning softball career. In Major League Baseball, collecting 3,000 hits is quite a milestone, and in 1972, not too many baseball greats had achieved such a lofty goal. Clemente got his 3,000th hit during his last game of 1972 and died a few months later. The Buffalo Creek flood was a disaster that occurred in February. When a coal slurry impoundment dam, coal slurry is a mixture of solids, coal, liquid, water, organic junk by a coal preparation plant. Anyway, that stuff was managed by the Pittston Coal Company in West Virginia, and it burst four days after being declared satisfactory by a federal mine inspector. The resulting flood unleashed approximately 132 million gallons of black wastewater cresting over 30 feet high upon the residents of 16 coal towns along Buffalo Creek Hollow. Out of a population of 5,000 people, 125 died, 1,200 were injured, and 4,000 were left homeless, and 500 houses were destroyed. That is ugly. The most popular films of 1972 were The Godfather and The Poseidon Adventure. And Atari kicked off the first generation of video games with the release of their game Pong. Roberta Fleck topped the charts with The First Time I Ever Saw Your Face, And Don McLean's epic, American Pie, clocked in at almost nine minutes in length. It was the longest song ever to rank number one on the pop charts. For me, 1972 is great for music. And I wasn't really paying attention as a little boy to all those other things that we talked about. Now, all these years later, I'm studying up on these things and reading about all these oil spills and disasters. Well, it's nice to be a kid. And the beat goes on. Ladies and gentlemen, birthday celebrations start now. Jacques Cousteau was born on June 11, 1910 and died in 1997. He was a French naval officer, explorer, conservationist, filmmaker, innovator, scientist, photographer, author, and researcher who studied the sea and all forms of life and water. He co-developed the Aqualong. G. I thought that was developed by Jethro Tull. Hmm. Cousteau pioneered marine conservation. In 1930, he entered the French Naval Academy and graduated as a gunnery officer. However, an automobile accident broke both his arms and cut short his career in naval aviation. The accident forced Cousteau to change his plans to become a pilot, and instead, he found his passion for the ocean. I guess that was a lucky break for us. In 1949, Cousteau left the French Navy. The next year, he founded the French Oceanographic Campaigns and leased a ship called the Calypso. Cousteau retrofitted the Calypso as a mobile laboratory for field research as his principal vessel for diving and filming. He also carried out underwater archaeological excavations in the Mediterranean. With the publication of his first book in 1953 called The Silent World, he correctly predicted the existence of the echolocation abilities of porpoises. A successful meeting with American television companies created the series, The Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau. This documentary television series ran for 10 years, from 1966 to 1976. A second series, called The Cousteau Odyssey, ran from 77 to 82 on public television. In 1973, he created the Cousteau Society for the Protection of Ocean Life. Two years later, John Denver released a tribute song called Calypso. In 1976, Cousteau located the wreck of the HMS Britannic. And in 1977, he received the UN International Environmental Prize. In 1985, he received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Ronald Reagan. In 1995, he sued his son, who was advertising Cousteau Fiji Islands Resort, to prevent him from using the Cousteau name for business purposes in the United States. In 1996, the Calypso was accidentally rammed and sunk in the port of Singapore by a barge. Talking about Cousteau wouldn't be complete without talking about that red wool hat, an iconic part of the man's legacy. The hat was a standard issue for British Army and Navy divers going back to the 1800s. The hats were called cap comforters, but the most widely known wearer of this hat was the famous diver William Walker, who lived from 1869 to 1918. He was the chief diver at the famous Seabay Gorman and Limited Company, overseeing 200 divers across the world. Walker's real claim to fame was single-handedly saving England's 11th century Winchester Cathedral from collapsing. Due to a design error, the foundation of the cathedral was built on a peat bog, and over time, the cathedral was sinking. The only way to save the cathedral was to remove the layer of peat below and fill the space with concrete. The renovation was complicated because the three and a half meter space below the cathedral was filled with turbid groundwater. This was a job for a diver, and being one of the best in the world, Walker was up to the task. Between 1906 and 1911, Walker spent six hours a day in 20 feet of pitch black water, working blind to underpin the foundations of the cathedral. Against these daunting odds, Walker managed to lay 25,000 bags of concrete, 115,000 concrete blocks, and 900,000 engineering bricks with the help of a topside support crew of 150 men. For his work, Walker was awarded the honor of the Royal Victorian Order. And today, a bust of Walker is on display at the cathedral, with Walker sporting the famous red cap. The red cap comforter became, and still is, the trademark of commercial divers. By the 1950s, the use of scuba equipment moved from commercial to general use, thanks to Aqualung inventors Emile Gagnon and Jacques Cousteau. With Cousteau and other diving personalities upholding the diving fashion statement, the red woolen cap soon became the worldwide recognized symbol of the diver. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks to the entire crew for helping me get through the longest episode of the podcast since episode 18. I hope you learned a few things today. I know I did. I learned about red hats on divers. I got a better handle on the early stages of the Keystone pipeline battle. I learned about some awesome young men and women working to clean up the world. And I was reminded of the fact that I've listened to American Pie when it first came out and not on an oldies channel. I never saw Don McLean in concert, but I did take my twin sons to see Weird Al Yankovic in concert, and he sang his Star Wars version of American Pie. Weird Al signed my kids' sneakers after the show. Weird, right? Well, after all, he's Weird Al, not Logical Al. I'm still fighting for us to save our future, even if I'm an oldie too. On the next show, we'll be talking about the shrinking water levels at Lake Mead and the severe drought in the western part of the United States. Until then, good night, Galileo. Thanks for listening to A Breath of Fresh Earth with your host, Rick Friedman. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you're the first to hear new episodes. If you want to nominate someone for Climate Hero of the Week, send it to Rick at the link below. This has been A Breath of Fresh Earth. Thanks for listening.